0: The Good-for-Nothing Button by Charisse Miracle Harper. Hey, look, it's Yellow Bird. Hi, Yellow Bird. Look what I have. Wow, wowie wow, I cannot believe it. What is it? It is a button, a red button. Red's my favorite. What does it do? Nothing nothing yes nothing watch press see nothing what may i press the button yes bluebird you may press the button press wow Um, wow what the button is so easy to press it surprised me A surprise is not nothing, that's true. May I press the button? Yes, Redbird, you may press the button. Yay, button, button, button. I'm pressing the button, press. Ah, the button did not surprise me. See, the button does nothing. Redbird, now you are sad. And sad is not nothing, that is true. Wait, the button cannot make you sad. The button does nothing. May I try again? Okay, fine. Here goes nothing. Press. Wow! Ha, the button surprised you again. It did. That button makes us happy. Happy button, happy button. Stop, the button does nothing. See? Press. I'm pressing the button. Press. And nothing is happening. Press. It is a good-for-nothing button. Uh Uh-oh. The button is making him mad. The button is not making me mad. I will prove it. I am pressing the button. Press. Look. I'm not mad. I am relaxed. Now the button is making him calm. (laughs) <laughs> what? Ah! <laughs> press, press, press. The button cannot make me calm, or mad, or happy, or surprised, or scared, or icky, or anything else. Ha ha ha! Well, old bird, we know what the button does. The button makes you funny. <laughs> funny? Funny! I like being funny. Funny is fun. Let's all be funny. Press, press, press. Funny, funny, funny. Button, button, button. Crash. Wow, that button does everything. That is true. What should we do now? More nothing. Nothing is my favorite and the worm at the bottom, that button gives me a headache. (laughs) So, how does this book make you feel? I'm betting it's not nothing. I wonder, where does the magic of the button and the book come from? Some of you might be thinking that the button had nothing to do with it. The fun that the birds had was all about their attitude. They're looking for fun, and so they find fun. You get out of something what you put into it. I'm sure some of you've heard that. Everything you were looking for was right there with you all along, Dorothy. Or maybe it was the sharing of the button that made it fun. On her own, Yellowbird had an ordinary do-nothing button, but when she got together with Redbird and Bluebird, when she showed them the button and shared the experience with them. It was the relationships that brought the wonder and enjoyment. Or maybe it actually was the button. Some of you know this. There's something special about a button that just urges you to push it. Something in the the color, the shape, the design. Every button wants to be pushed. Desire and wonder are built into the button experience. So truly every button does something regardless of what it actually does. Or maybe it was mostly that the birds had past experience with buttons, so they expected that this button would do something because that's what all the other buttons have done. So it was their Pavlovian training to react to a button, even a button that this time doesn't yield the expected results. Or maybe there are a few cynics out there who think it's all silliness, it's just a book, because nothing is nothing is nothing. At which point point, the philosophers and poets among us still wonder where even that experience and expression of nothing comes from. How even the absence of sensation is itself a sensation. I have these same questions about spirituality. By spirituality, I mean the collection of values, beliefs and practices that give our life meaning and purpose. Some would use the word religion for that, maybe faith. To me, those are all pretty similar maybe with varying degrees of organization and collectivity. Whatever we call it, spirituality, religion, faith, the promise, the hope, is that doing this well, tending to that deeper side of ourselves, will lead to a life of meaning and purpose and belonging. And that's going to take us somewhere. It's going to carry us through tough times. It's going to enhance our experience of the good times and make us more fully human. There are different ways of talking about it, but what I want to know is how does it work? How does spirituality get me to that better, more fulfilling life that it promises? To me, it's an open question, like with the do nothing button. Is it a case where I get out what I put in, that my intentions and expectations and investment, that I'm the one doing the work and that work generates the kind of result? Maybe it's the shared experience that spirituality spirituality compels me into more and stronger connections, and it's those connections that give life meaning and purpose. Or maybe it's something in the thing itself that practicing a faith changes a person, emotionally, physiologically, and it's all the norms and repetitions that make up a religion that are a mechanism for change, a figurative button that actually does change something and everything, because that's what a religion is designed to do. Or perhaps spirituality is the byproduct, or maybe even a distraction or hamster wheel that's just something that I do. And it's actually the experience of being alive that helps me to gain the wisdom and contentment that I'm seeking. How does this work? And yes, you would think that I would have been obligated to figure that out before someone let me have a piece of paper proclaiming that I'm a master of divinity. But alas, the questions abide. There's a story told in a book called Sleeping with Bread, Holding What Gives You Life by Dennis, Sheila, and Matthew Lynn. During the bombing raids of World War II, thousands of children were orphaned and left to starve. The fortunate ones were were rescued and placed in refugee camps, where they received food and good care. But many of these children had lost so much they could not sleep at night. They feared waking up to find themselves once again homeless and without food. Nothing seemed to reassure them. Finally, someone hit upon the idea of giving each child a piece of bread to hold at bedtime. Holding their bread, these children could finally sleep in peace. All through the night, the bread reminded them, today I ate and I will eat again tomorrow. I like that story as a metaphor for spirituality. Holding what gives you life. We are all holding things. Relationships, routines, roles, physical stuff, emotional stuff, hobbies, habits, just the things that we fill our life with. I think that all of that adds up to spirituality. This is what we're giving our lives to, intentionally or otherwise, for better and for worse. And again, I wonder how does this work and is it working for us? How do the things that we spend our time doing, the things that we invest in, How do those things shape our lives? Or more critically, how can we shape those things that shape us in ways that will lead us to the kind of life that we want, the kind of person that we want to be? How do we hold what gives us life? Or as Jesus said it, how do we seek first the kingdom of God? How do we keep the things of God as the central structure on which the rest of life is built and added on? I would say that that's what organized religion is all about at its best. Offering tried and true ways to hold on to the kind of life that we want, to shape us into the kind of people that we want to be. And so for many people in our culture, the answer used to be simple, go to church. Most good Mennonites went to church almost every Sunday, usually for some kind of Sunday school or education-focused hour in addition to the worship service. And depending on the community, many folks were heavily involved in church activities and relationships throughout the week as well. Being involved in a church community was what faith was all about. And there was enough there that it worked for most people. There was enough regularity, enough prayer, enough teaching, enough relationships, enough communion, enough depth, enough stuff to do what spirituality is meant to do. Of course, church attendance has always been part of this complete breakfast kind of thing. Spiritual health requires a lot more than coming to a service once a week. But that was a solid base to start with, encouraging and supplemented by other disciplines and practices in daily life. And that was good and is good for some people. But largely I am talking about this spirituality based on weekly church attendance as a thing of the past because that's what it is for the broad majority. Here at Wildwood, of all the people that would call this our church, I would estimate that about a third of us are here almost every Sunday morning. There's another third or so that average one or two times a month, maybe. And the remaining third that are less frequent still maybe attending a handful of services a year or less. I don't know how believable this is coming from somebody standing behind a pulpit, but this is in no way a criticism or a guilt trip. It really isn't. There are many different reasons why people don't come to church on Sunday mornings, and that's okay. There are people from all three of those groups that actively participate in the church in other ways, in small groups, in volunteering, in finances, in business meetings, and more. You don't have to come to church, to a worship service every Sunday to be part of the church. And as pastor, my goal is not to get you to come here more often. My goal is to help you work out a spirituality that does what what you want it to do, that it works for you, and I believe that this church community can be part of that, and so I want to help you to figure out how to make that a complete package. So I'm not trying to guilt you to be here more often or anything. My point is that most people don't come to church as often as we used to, and we know that many, many people don't come to church ever, any church at all. And there's no judgment around that, just curiosity. My question is, for those for whom this, what we're doing here, if it doesn't work all that well, then what does work? And for those of us who are here, is this Sunday morning-based spirituality, is this enough to hold what gives us life? It used to be, but for many of us, I'm not sure that we're getting what we want and need from the Sunday morning church experience anymore. And even if it is, even if it is working for us, what do we have to offer for those whom it doesn't, for our children and grandchildren and friends who aren't interested in church? Because we want something to give them, We want them to have spirituality themselves, to be able to hold on to the things that give them life. Not because we want them to come here and be like us, but because we want them to have this full life that spirituality promises. I don't know how to do this exactly. I'm excited to see different things that churches and other faith communities are trying. By my observation, I would say that a lot of people are are making it up as we go along and trying lots of different kinds of things from a variety of different sources. And some churches are threatened by that, but I think we can embrace it and see where it goes. Just like the food industry is, ex- is experimenting with a future beyond meat, I think churches need to experiment with a beyond Sunday approach, to spirituality. So that's going to be the focus of our summer worship series, spirituality beyond Sunday. I have two goals for the summer series. First is to re-examine what we do in here. How can our church involvement shape our lives most effectively? Since most of us aren't here all the time, let's think about what it is that works when we are here, the life that we find here, how we can build our services and our, our community around those things. Now, I don't expect that this is going to lead to some major shakeup. Most of us do keep showing up here because what we do already works, and as a church, we are fairly comfortable with experimenting with worshiped, different kinds of worship things for better and for worse. But it's worth asking this question, keeping it in front of us, to make sure that what we're doing here actually works for us and does what we need it to. We don't just keep coming because it's comfortable. And second, perhaps more importantly, how can we incorporate our spirituality into the rest of life? Especially without assuming that we're all gonna be here every Sunday to to have this as the base of our operations for most of us. How do we make space for prayer, for sharing, For service, for ritual, for formation, these things that we've learned in church, many of us, how do we take those things beyond Sunday? How can we make those things accessible to people who are no longer familiar or comfortable with the language and patterns of church-based spirituality? If people can't, won't, don't come to the mountain, how do we take the mountain to the people? So this means we're going to go on some field trips this summer. On July 28th, we're going to take our Sunday morning worship service out to the Muro's farm to experience a bit of closer relationship to the land than some of us usually get. On July 14, Eileen is working on an outdoor activity, inviting us to look for God through the lens of a camera. Outdoors, if the weather allows. In August, we're going to try again to worship God in the garden, the community garden. Again, weather permitting. Other Sundays, we're gonna stay right here, do our usual thing mostly, but with a beyond Sunday focus. In two weeks, I'll invite us to consider church at the lake. How do we make spirituality part of our downtime, wherever that takes us? Later in July, we're gonna talk about church in our families. How do we spark meaningful spiritual conversations with those in our families whose view of religion might be quite different from ours? How do we influence the spiritual formation of children and teenagers in our lives? How do we allow them to teach us? And with each of these, given the Beyond Sunday theme, my hope is that we'll find some ways to share what we're up to with those who aren't here. Because again, I'm not expecting everyone to be interested and available to come here every week anyway. So that's going to be the ongoing challenge um, as we talk about Beyond Sunday on Sundays. How do we carry this forward um, into the rest of life? Today we're going to practice a bit. We've talked a bit before here about the practice of the daily examine. Some of some people pronounce it examen or examine, and those do sound much holier. Um, but I'm going to stick with examine because it looks like examine to me. In its most basic form, the examine is the practice of asking yourself two questions: For what moment today am I most grateful? For what moment today am I least grateful? Pretty simple. There are many other ways to ask the same questions. When did I give and receive the most love today? When did I give and receive the least love today? When did I feel most alive today? When did I feel most life draining out of me? When today did I have the greatest sense of belonging to myself, others, God, and the universe? When did I have the least sense of belonging? When was I happiest? When was I saddest? What was today's high point? What was today's low point? The same thing. For all of those questions and those questions can be an internal reflection they could be used to spark journaling or they could be shared in conversation with someone else the authors of sleeping with bread gather as a couple or a family every night they take about 10 to 20 minutes for quiet reflection and then sharing between them around those two questions in my family the questions usually come as what was your up part today or what was your down part Most often, those questions come around the supper table, um, but they're also useful for finding out what children were up to during the school day, on the ride home, um, or for getting kids and adults to settle down at bedtimes, etc. The technical term for this positive side is consolation. The things that have brought comfort, have made you feel at home, lifted your spirits. The negative side is called desolation. When you're feeling out of sync, upended, maybe not a total disaster, Desolation sounds pretty extreme, but at least you're feeling the seeds of disease, of defeat, of collapse. The practice of examine helps us to see our lives more clearly and honestly, simply by taking the time to look. It can help us to practice gratitude, to see that there's always something to be thankful for, even when the desolation part feels overwhelming. It can help us to find balance, to live with the expectation that, The negative is there, it's part of life, and it doesn't cancel out the good. Over time, the examine can help us to see patterns in our lives, see repeating themes and experiences, things that might help us understand ourselves and and the presence of God in our lives. That kind of awareness can guide decision-making, improve relationships, and give us perspective. Again, from sleeping with bread. We do the examine questions as a way of reflecting upon any significant experience or a period of time. We do it over part of a day, following a conversation, a meeting, a class, a movie, a meal. We stop in the midst of a project when we feel stuck or in a discussion that is turning into an argument. We do the examine over an entire day. We do the examine over our week by asking ourselves, what am I most grateful for during the past week? What am I least grateful for? Dennis and Sheila, the authors, do this each week with a group that gathers in their home every Sunday afternoon followed by dinner. Matt does this every Thursday morning at 7.30 a.m. with five members of his Jesuit community. Often on special occasions, we invite friends to share the examine. For example, on New Year's Day, we all share what we gave and received the most and least love during the past year. On St. Patrick's Day, we share what we are most or least grateful for in our Irish or Jewish or Vietnamese or African et cetera heritage. On the 4th of July, we share how our country has given us life and how it has taken life from us during the past year. On the anniversary of a, lo- of a loved one's death or on Memorial Day, we share when we feel- felt the most consolation and the most desolation in the grieving process. There are many places where we might want to do the examine and people with whom we can do it. For many of us, the most natural setting of the- for the examine is with a close friend or a spouse with whom we already share our lives. If we attend a support group, this may be another place where we can do the examine as a way of sharing ourselves with the group. Those who meet regularly with a spiritual companion, confessor, or therapist might want to include the examine as a way of sharing their process of growth. Teachers may want to do the examine with their students, supervisors with their employees. Students may want to do it with their teachers and employees with their supervisors too. So this book has some other examples of how to incorporate the examine as a ritual in different settings. In spite of some unfortunate illustrations, it is a book for adults, not a kid's book. And it's quite helpful, and I have several copies if you'd like to borrow. So let's practice today with an examine of what we're doing now, of this worship service so far. So think back over the past couple of hours, including whatever it was that you did to get ready and get here. Think about walking in the door, Greeting folks, or maybe avoiding folks. Um, Think about what has happened in the service thus far. What is it that you're most grateful for? And what is it that you are least grateful for? And then if you have time, what do those observations say about your spirituality and how you hold what gives you life? We're going to take five minutes to be quiet and do this. So go ahead and take your time. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus and his followers were leaving the temple in Jerusalem, which for them was the holiest place in their spirituality. And one of Jesus' friends was just so impressed with this temple building. And he just went on and on about how big the stones were, how impressive and beautiful the architecture was. But Jesus said, take a good look, for this whole thing is about to be torn down. I love the way Rob Bell talks about this story. So we're going to listen to part of his
1: podcast. So now let's go all the way back to those students saying to Jesus, man, this temple is awesome. It's beautiful. It's huge. It's massive. And essentially Jesus saying, that's all coming down. You can read it as a historic prediction of the Roman conquest, but you could also read it at a whole other level as Jesus saying, the understanding That the divine is more in other places than in the place you are at, that the divine is in some places more than other places. It's almost like he's saying that whole understanding has to come down. The idea that some people have holier jobs than others, the idea that some space is more sacred than other space, the idea that some people have a calling that's more elevated or important or spiritual than other people, that understanding has to come down. It's going to come down. It's almost like he says, because I've come to usher in a new era where that temple comes down so that you can come to see that the divine dwells everywhere. Jesus Christ comes to announce that the whole thing is a temple. See, for many people, the spatial breakdown is still the dominant image. You go to a place to be near the divine. You go hear a certain person, you go. Enact a particular ritual to get closer to the divine. Uh, Or sometimes what happens is the way that it's structured is you come in out of the big bad world with all of its very real dangers and threats. You come in out of it to meet with God. And then once you've had the meeting, then you leave it to go out into that space but what jesus comes to do is teach us to encounter the holy the sacred and the divine in all of life so any gathering any temple any ritual any rite that helps you get those eyes it helps train your sensibilities it helps heighten your sensitivities that's beautiful but if at any point it keeps things divided then it's working against what jesus christ comes to do which is to announce that the whole thing is a temple jesus christ comes to open our eyes to the divine presence in all of life so if you want a prayer if you want a mantra if you want something to repeat man how about this one show me i swear to you that prayer That mantra is never far from my heart and my lips. Show me. Show me. I don't want to live in a divided world. I want to live with this awareness that the whole thing is a temple because it makes life so much better.
0: Let's pray. Open our eyes, creator God, to your love that fills the whole earth show us jesus god with us your presence that never leaves fill us spirit of god in whom we live and ground our steps all over this sacred world amen